So thank you, thank you once again for that, for the opportunity to opportunity to, to learn together. Our learning should be a merit for the for the chayelim. I see some parents of chayelim here, some actual chayelim here, and for and for the and for the katufim. Um, the last couple of weeks we've been discussing the the topic of kavana betzvila, of intentions, of the thought processes that you should be having with davening. Now we're going to move from kavana um, to decibel level. Should we be screaming when we're praying? Should we, should we be quiet? Should we, do we have to say any words at all? Maybe concentration is such an important facet of tefillah, of davening, that you don't, you don't, then maybe, maybe you don't even have to say anything. Why are we doing this topic today? Two reasons. Number one, because it is a continuation of the last couple of weeks about kavana, about intention. And also because for those people that follow Chabad, today is Yon Alev Shvat, which is the, uh, the Yom, Ham, Yom Hanasios. It is the day the Babish Rebbe became the Rebbe of, of Chabad. Um, in Chabad land, they like, this is the day to spread the Torah of the Babish Rebbe. And the Babish Rebbe happens to have a nice idea relevant to this topic. So I figured we could, uh, we could, we could accomplish two tasks in one. We could learn some, some, some in-depth halacha about the concepts of davening and decibel level, and also get at least one quote in from the Babish Rebbe. So are we supposed to be screaming when we're davening? So if, if you went to Shirat Tavid, what would the response be? Oh, screaming, screaming is a little bit is a negative connotation. Pleasantly davening, good. You're supposed to be davening, supposed to be davening out loud, because yeah, we know that that's true for most of davening. But once you get up to Shmona Esrei, once you get up to the central part of davening, everything is quiet. So, like I'm sure people have had, have had the experience of davening at the Kotel. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm sure. But anybody who's davening at the Kotel for Basikin, for uh, for, sun, the sun, for the sunrise prayers, what happens? There's a there's a large buzz. Everybody's screaming. All of a sudden, when it hits sunrise and all the different groups start Shimon Esrei, all of a sudden, it's silence. And the difference is so stark. And what we're going to explore today is the reason why that central prayer, the reason why Shimon Esrei is supposed to be said silently. So there are a couple of different passages in the Talmud that relate to this. We're going to go through them one by one. We're going to see that from the, from the language of the Talmud, it sounds like there is no positive reason why you're supposed to be quiet, there are negative reasons about screaming, then we'll try to explore a little bit more, then maybe there is something positive to be gained through, through praying silently, through praying in a whisper. So let's look at source number one. This is the Talmud Bavli, Mitzakas Brachos, Yaakov So you might think that you should, you should speak loudly when you daven. That Chana prayed silently, and that's supposed to be a model for our prayers. So here you don't have a, a reason whether or not it's a good thing, to, good thing to pray silently, a good thing to pray out loud. It's just a that she, they, her, her, her voice was not heard when she was praying for a son. And again, the focus as of now is on the negative. You should not hear the voice. Let's keep, let's keep track of the negative formulations versus the positive formulations. The second source where this comes up is a Gemara later on on that same page. The Gemara writes as follows. Amar Rav Hamnuna, Rav Hamnuna stated... There are so many amazing halachot that we could learn from Chana's prayers for our son. The Torah says that Chana would speak through her heart. From there we see you have to have intention. You have to, you have to be thinking about the prayers when, you, when one prays. That her lips were moving. You, have to, you should say the words. The same exact, the same exact derivation. Her voice was not heard. From there we see you shouldn't raise your voice in prayer. Good. So we see that Chana 
the, 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 is the archetype of biblical prayer. She doesn't raise her voice during prayer. We're also not supposed to raise our voices during prayer. Why not? What's the problem? Now we have a precedent. We have a biblical precedent. We don't have a reason. We don't have an explanation. So if you look at, so look at source number three, what is the explanation? What is the reason why it's not a good idea to scream out prayers? The Talmud states, If you scream out your prayers, you are of small faith. What's the connection? Why are you of small faith if you scream out your prayers? The Gemara doesn't explain. But Rashi explains, if you look at Rashi underneath, It's as if you believe that God doesn't hear you when you're whispering. Rather, you feel like you need to scream to be heard up in the heavens. Can we just extend that? So why do we need to daven? God ah. understands our thoughts. Great, 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 great. exactly. Does he need to ask to move our lips? Does it, like, exactly. Good, good, 100%. So what Avi's pointing out is that if you take this, take this logic to the extreme, then you shouldn't have to have any type of action when you're praying. Prayer should be entirely meditative. Good. Any ideas? But we need a structure. So we, good, good. So, good. so we're, we're going to see that there's going to be, there are going to be two different approaches to this question. Um, this, the simple approach is that all of halacha, almost all of halacha, at least what Rabbi Salvechik writes about this at great length in his books, it's about concretizing and expressing through action with the religious emotions and thoughts that we have in our, in our, in our mind or hearts. And he points out, this is one of the themes of halachic man, of that, of that book, that, that other religions might focus a lot on values, might focus a lot on experiences, might focus a lot on emotions and spirituality. Judaism, halachic Judaism, is a very, very practical, real-worldly real system, which is, which is dominated by actions. You have to act in a certain way from the moment you wake up until, until the moment you go to sleep. What's the value of this action, detail-based religion? It seems to be very, very, and it seems to be anathema to the religious experiences that we all want. Because, exactly, because exactly what Avi said, that halakha doesn't trust what's inside a human being without the ability to express it, without the ability to practicalize it, without the ability to make it real. That's one of his approaches. And he also talks about, if you want to have an impact on the world around you, you can't just have a meditative, spiritual, internal religion. You have to be doing things, constantly doing things, and that helps you fix the world around you that influences your surroundings. So those are the two of the themes that Rabbi Salvechik points out in Lachic Man. That's why Judaism is very action-focused, even though, as a religion, it's a, it's a lot about the spirituality and the emotions that are, that are inside. So you could say that's the response, that Judaism, Judaism in general is about making things practical, action, making, making things action-based. Therefore, even though their kavana, intention, is the main part of prayer, you still have to express it in, in, some, in some way. But if you, if you follow this approach, there's nothing really inherent about praying out loud that's, that's so negative. There's nothing inherent about praying silently that's positive. We just don't want you to have some type of theological, we don't want you to have some type of theological mistake that God only hears you when you are screaming your prayers. For those that know their, their, their biblical stories, um, which group of people screamed out their prayers and were made fun of by, by the Navi Elio? Oh. The, the, the Navi Ebal. Right? They were screaming out their prayers. They, Baal, Anino, Baal, Anino, Baal, answer us, Baal, answer us. And Elio was like, maybe your God is sleeping, and that's why you have to scream louder, and that's why your God is not sending down the fire to, to consume the sacrifices. The Mar discusses that literally, literally, literally on, on the next line. So that's like the biblical model that, that's there in the background. But it's a theological problem. There's nothing inherent to prayer that should be that should be allowed, should, that should be silent. It's just that we don't want you to think that God only listens when you are screaming. So that's one reason, perhaps, why Hannah prayed silently. A second reason is less theological. Yeah, Brandon. All right, are we going to make a choice between um, public praying loudly and uh, individual praying loudly? Oh, good. 
Yeah, we're good. We're good. We're good. Public in what sense? Good. Good. 100%. 100%. We'll, we'll get there at the end. And we're going to see that, that the, the Talmud actually describes a shul, a synagogue, as a place of song. I think we've, we might have seen this in one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the previous shirim, Makam Rina Shamtei that the definition, the Talmudic definition of a synagogue is a place where people sing together. So clearly that is in tension with what we just read. The prayer is supposed to be silent, and we'll, we'll, we'll get there, we'll get, and we'll get there towards the end, God willing. Um, so the first problem with praying out loud is theological, that you might be expressing the notion that God only hears you when you're screaming. The second, the second reason the Talmud states as to why you shouldn't be praying out loud is a different passage, the Gemara in Sota, the Plamabes and source number four, is not theological, not between man and God, but between you, between human beings, interpersonal. What's the problem of praying out loud? That our prayers include the bracha of Salah Manu, where we ask God for forgiveness. And the text is a set text. But there is space there, as we God along, we'll see, we'll see in a, in a future session, to add in personal, add in personal requests. And in the bracha of Salah Lanu, where we're asking God for forgiveness, you're allowed to mention any sin. If you spoke Lashon Hara, if you, I don't know, if you, if you stole, if you stole, stole a lollipop from a, from a baby earlier that day, this is the space in the structured prayers where you're supposed to be able to admit, to confess to God, this is what you did. Bittel Torah also is something which every day, yeah, Tanya says every day you're supposed to confess about Bittel Torah because we're all wasting time. Time management is an issue for all of us, especially in the era of, of smartphones. And therefore, unless you're davening from, from your smartphone, in which case you're using it for good, I think maybe confessing every day about wasting time with smartphones would be, would be a positive thing. Unless it's going to get you down. I think davening the simcha is a very important thing also, as we've seen. Um, but, but, um, but confession is, a, is, is one part of Shemona Esrei. And what's going to happen if everybody's praying out loud? They're all going to hear each other's confessions. So this is what the Talmud says in source number four. Why did they say that tefillah should be done quietly? You should pray quietly. To not, not embarrass the people that commit sins. They, the space where the, where the sin offering was, was, was offered was the same exact location as the carbon ola, as an offering that wasn't brought for sins. That way, everybody could be in the same corner, and the outside observer doesn't know who's bringing sin, who's bringing an offering because they sinned, who's bringing a sacrifice just because they want to donate something to the temple. Fantastic. So now we have two reasons why you're not supposed to daven out loud. Number one, theological argument. Number two, an interpersonal an, 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 an interpersonal argument. So if this was all there was, it wouldn't be much of a topic. It wouldn't be something, it wouldn't be something to speak about. There are two technical problems with praying out loud. And that's why the sages taught us that you should pray silently. Great. But there's nothing positive per se. There's no value added in praying silently. It's more about avoiding issues. However, if you fast forward from the Talmud, from the 500s, to the 20th and 21st century, in a fascinating way, both the Babach Rebbe and Rav Aaron Luchtenstein, Rashiva and Yeshivat Haratzio, and Mori Rabio, is all going to be in this year for a year, point out that there are indications throughout Talmudic literature that it's not just avoiding a negative to pray to pray aloud. There's actually added value. There's something. There's, there's actually added value in praying praying silently. Something about prayer, something about tefillah, indicates or teaches us is amplified when you're doing it silently. What indications exist 
that there's some there's some added value in praying balakash and praying silently. They point out as follows. It's fascinating. Rav Lukensin and the Baba Sharebi point to similar to similar makoros. They point to similar sources. Um, you look at source number five, the Rif. The Rif was was one of the first codifiers of the Lachak system post Talmud, and he basically always quotes <coughs> the Talmudic passages. But if you look at if you look at our Talmud, if you look at source number two at the end the end of the source, it says the Kolon Yishama Mikan the formulation is negative. You are prohibited to raise your voice in prayer. Look at the underlying part of the riff, source number five. The Chana's voice was not being encouraged. She was playing silently. Look at the formulation. What did the riff do? He changed a negative formulation to a positive formulation. As opposed to saying there is a prohibition against praying out loud, which indicates that there is a problem of praying out loud, which is avoided by praying silently, what did the Rift do? He said, you must pray silently. Changing the formulation from avoiding a negative to adding a positive <coughs> indicates that there's some added value by praying, by praying silently. Not just avoiding a theological issue and avoiding an interpersonal issue, you're actually adding value by praying, by, by, by praying silently. Similarly, if you look in the Talmud Yerushalmi, Hamid Roshani has a different source for how we know to pray silently. You look at the look at source number six. It says, You might think you're supposed to raise your voice in prayer. If you look at Talmud Bavli, what is the source that Chana prayed silently? The Kula lo Yishema. Her voice wasn't heard. According to the Talmud Yushami, what is the source that Chana prayed silently? She spoke, how do you, how do you translate al-liba? From, From her heart, through her heart, on her, literally on her heart, clearly it's a metaphor of something, through her heart, she spoke through her heart, or yeah, probably through her heart, with her heart, that's probably a better, a better, a better, a better English translation. So we see, so according to Talmud Yushami, there is an explicit verse, her voice was not heard, that, 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 that describes the prayer of Zohana, and yet we don't use that verse to source the fact that prayers are supposed to be silent. We use a different verse. Which verse? The fact that she was speaking in a heartfelt fashion. What does that indicate? What 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 what, what pieces of the of the puzzle about tefillah does that connect? Kavana, intention, speaking in a heartfelt fashion, with davening silently. So it's not just kolan lo yishama, where voice wasn't heard. Now the fact that they were praying silently is supposed to be an expression of a heartfelt type of a heartfelt type of prayer. Like the definition of davening from your heart is davening. It's uncommon, exactly, exactly, and that's exactly what the Labish Rabbi is, is, going to, is going to pick up on. He was a master at picking up at these, at these, at these nuanced formulations, and he's going to say exactly, exactly that point, which God willing, God willing, we'll get to, we'll, we'll get to in a couple of minutes. You see that we're, we're connecting kavana, intention, contemplation, meditation, concentration, with praying silently. Those two things go together. Accord, at least, at least, at least in the in the world of Chabad, a similar, a third indication. So we have we have two indications now that there's some type of added value of praying silently. Number one, the rift changed the formulation from a prohibition of praying out loud to a positive formulation: you must pray silently. And the fact that the Talmud Yerushalmi connects the fact that Chana prayed in a heartfelt fashion with <laughs> speak with praying silently. Another indication. Is that when we speak about praying, praying silently, 
the definition of speech is different, the decibel level of speech is different for prayer than it is for other mitzvot shavadibar, for other mitzvot where you have to say things. There are many mitzvot in Judaism where you have to say something. You have to say brachos, you have to say grace after meals, you have to read Megillah Tester, you have to read from the Torah. For all of these things, there is a minimal <coughs> decibel level that is necessary according to the halachic system. That is to be mashmi'ah ve'oznayim. You're supposed to at least hear what you're saying. So you could whisper it, but the, but the, but the, but the sound has to, carry to your, has to carry to your ears. The Rashba points out that at least there was one tradition among the Rishonim that said that tefillah belachash, that tefillah quietly, has to be so quiet you shouldn't even hear it yourself. Is that humanly possible? To whisper in such a way that the sound doesn't actually carry to your own ears? I'm not sure. Brandon is our local physicist. He tells, he tells me it's impossible. But, um, sorry, Brandon. Um, but, um, but, um, but it either means that there's actually no sound emerging from your voice, from your, from, from your throat. You're, really, you're literally just moving your lips in, a, in like a sign language, in a without without emitting any type, without any sound em, emerging from your voice, or there really is a way to whisper in such a slow fashion that the sound doesn't even carry to your own ears. Maybe if it's loud outside, I'm not sure. But the Rashba says he doesn't pass him like this. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say this is normative. But if you look at the Rashba, verse number seven, he quotes a very live tradition that you're supposed to whisper so low that you can't even hear it yourself. So that indicates that the definition of speech by prayer, the legal definition of speech, is different than the definition of speech that we normally have throughout the rest of the mitzvot of the Torah. Look at source number eight. Source number eight is what the Shulchan Aruch says, what Jewish law says about, about the grace after meals, by Berkat HaMazon. We find this in every other mitzvah, you have to at least hear what you yourself are saying, at least on a lechachila level. By prayers, there's at least one major opinion in the Rishonim that you don't even have to hear it yourself. So what does that indicate? It's not just about avoiding prayer out loud because of some theological problem of screaming your prayers or because of some interpersonal problem that you're going to embarrass, people are going to, people, that people are going to feel embarrassed. Rather, there is a positive value in getting, in doing some action when you're praying, saying the words, but saying them in such a low fashion that you can't, in a minimal, in, 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 saying it with the minimal amount of speech possible. Why would this be the case? If you look at source number nine, it could be that this is explicit in, explicit in Talmud Bavli. Tana Rabbanan, the rabbi is taught, v'dibarta bam. So this is by Kriyachma. The Torah says by Kriyachma, you're supposed to say the words of Kriyachma. What is the Gemara, what does the Gemara derive from here? Bam. You're supposed to speak the words of Kriyat Shema, but you're not supposed to speak the words of Tefillah. What does that mean? Look at Rashi, Tefillah Tefillah is supposed to be so low that the, that the word Dibor, the legal word for speech throughout the entire Torah, is not relevant to prayer. Prayer is supposed to be said so much Balachash, it's supposed to be whispered to such a low decibel level that even the regular definition of speech is not going to be relevant for, for, for prayer. So now we have three different indications, and perhaps even a source, that speech for prayer is something that's, that, that praying silently, praying in a whisper, has some, some, something interesting is about it. There's some positive added value. 
Number one, the riff has a positive formulation. Sarak should say tefillah blachash. Tefillah has to be blachash. And tefillah has, has to be whispered. The Talmud Yerushalmi connects tefillah blachash, connects to praying silently, playing, praying in a whisper, to the notion of kavana, to the notion of in having attention when one prays. And even the very definition of speech is the legal definition of speech throughout halakha, throughout Jewish law, which is saying the words to the extent that you could hear them may not be relevant when it comes to tefillah. So once this is the case, you sort, of, you sort of have to take a step back and ask why. What We understand the negatives of praying out loud, of screaming your prayers, but what would be the added value of praying silently, so silently that you yourself can't even hear what you're saying? Like we want to have some type of concretization, we want to have some type of action, but on the other hand, we, we really don't want to have a full-blown speech. Any ideas? It's more personal. It's more personal. In, in what sense? Because it's just between you and God. It's like no one around you. Right. Is... I mean, why do we speak? Usually, to hear. sometimes we speak for ourselves to hear. That's what I often do. But, um, but some, mostly we speak to communicate. And if you're not meant to communicate with any other, any other being other than God, it's really supposed to be it's just between you and God. So you're supposed to speak, you want to concretize the action. We'll see him in a couple minutes, maybe it's not even necessary. But you want to concretize it through moving your lips, through emitting some type of sound from, from, from your throat. But at the same time, you want, to, you, want to, you, want to, you want to hit home the notion that you're not speaking to communicate with a human being, you're speaking to communicate with God. Fantastic. We'll get there in a second. Yeah, Ellie. The, the Kabbalah is your in Kodesh Kodoshim. Kodesh Kodoshim is, is not a Pneum. So also the Pneum is inside you. Ah. Going into your neshama, into the inner realm of your soul. So fantastic. So I, I think I think what Avi said and what Ellie said are connected, in the sense that if you're not speaking to communicate with somebody else, you're really just speaking what's you're really just trying to express. You need a way to concretize and express what's inside. That's what the main part of the main part of tefillah is the kavana. It's what's inside. It's what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. You want to express that in some way, so you have to move your lips. You want to emit some type of sound. But just to emphasize that the speech is not the main part. The main part is the Kavana Shevalev, is what's going on inside. You want to minimize and dilute what the definition of speech is regarding tefillah. Who says this? The Baba Shrebi, source number 12, the Kutisikos. The Baba Shrebi gave, Baba Shrebi was fascinating because, in many ways, but he gave most of what he, he spoke a lot about Chasidos, but he also gave full-blown Talmudic lectures. Full-blown. And then at the very end, he would connect it back to Chasidos. This is, this is a full-blown Talmudic lecture on the topic of tefillah v'lachaj, of praying silently. And he writes as follows. This is, this is like, to, after going through the proofs, this is, his, this is his formulation. Source number 12. The main essence of prayer is kavana, is the intention you bring to it, and the thoughts of your heart. It's referred to as a service of the heart. That is why tefillah has to be quiet, has to be whispered. This is a Chabad statement. How do you really get to the deepest parts of your soul? You would think by screaming, by dancing, by, by, by some type of external, by some type of external, external expression. In the Chabad world, what Ellie said, I think, I think holds, holds, holds true. There is definitely room for screaming, for praying, for praying out loud, for dancing, for singing, for doing all these things. But the, but the way to get to the deepest part of your soul is actually through silence, through meditation, through contemplation, through, through a thought process, through realizing 
that your soul is deeply connected to God. And that is a process of meditation. That's a process of contemplation. So there is a space in prayer for praying out loud. We're going to see. Sukkot is Zimra, the earlier parts of prayer should be said out loud. But once you get to Shimon Esrei, once you get to the main part of prayer, it has to be done as silently as possible because that emphasizes that the, that the best way of tapping into your soul is through silence. It's through some type of meditative, contemplative, con- meditative, contemplative process. And yes, there is room. We're not, we're not Buddhists. We're not Buddhist monks. There is room for everything else. And there's space for everything else. And there's, there are Fabrengans, and there's Simcha, and there's joy, and there's singing, and there's dancing, and there's doing, and there's doing everything. But at the core of everything has to be some type of internal, silent process of you feeling connected to God. And that's what Shemona Esrei is about, and that's what Shemona Esrei has to be said as much balakash, as much silently as humanly possible. That's the Baba Tureti. Rav Levenstein used a similar constellation of sources, but came up with a different, a related, but a different formulation. Look at source number 11. This is an article he wrote um, several decades ago about, about different mitzvot when have had to be spoken, um, which ones should be said aloud, which ones should be said silently. So he writes as follows. L'chora, in source number 11, it's, it appears, Hatsorak Balakash, the need to pray silently, Mitkasher and Mazdika Lakadosh Baruchu, Hadrusha Bishat and Midala Fanav. It connects, it, it, it's, it, it, um, it connects with the notion that prayer is an encounter with God. She Chayabet Laset Ofi Shat Snea Lakat, Vunboa Mayanot Hit Badrut Klapavit Varach, Kidoma Ladin Tikon Haguf. That when you're encounter, it's not an issue of kavana, of intention. Maybe your intention would be better if you screamed the words. Who knows? Everybody works differently. But according to Wilkinstein, what is the essence of prayer? Understanding that, you're, understanding that you are standing before God. This encounter with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. What happens when you encounter God? A lot of things. But a certain sense of fear, a certain sense of awe, a certain sense of you're encountering something transcendent. What, what reaction is that going to engender within the human being? A recoil, a certain sense of paralysis, a certain sense of trying to make yourself small. And therefore, how is that expressed in prayer? Through praying, through praying silently. There is added value in praying silently because that is the way a person prays. That is the way a person talks when they are in front of somebody, when they're in front of somebody that is awe-inspiring. They feel small. When they feel small, they're going to whisper. Again, a lot of Judaism is empowering. There's a lot of space for the screaming, for the yelling, for the dancing, for the for the for the for the for the, for the human in, for the human input. But at the center of our prayers, Shimon Esrei is an encounter with the divine. An encounter with the divine makes you feel small. That is a positive feeling when it's balanced with love for God and feeling and, and human empowerment. But it's a positive feeling. It's part of the overall the overall package of Judaism. And the and the way a person reacts when they feel small is that they speak silently. They whisper. What, what's the source for the term Tzvila Balachash? What did that come about? So that came about in, um, and it's, I think it's in the... Is that like the final answer? It's the, the, the final answer? Oh, oh, why do we call it Tzvila Balachash? Oh, I mean like... Why is that the name for Shemona Esrei? Yeah. I don't know, the, the term, the fact that you should doubt in is already in the Gemara and the Rift. The fact that we call Shemona Esrei that, I don't know exactly what point in history it happens, and my guess is that because, because we preach Shemona Esrei out loud, we want to differentiate between the Chazan Shemona Esrei and everybody else's Shemona Esrei. So one is Tefillah Balachash and one is Tefillah Vetzibor. Tefillah as a broad category is all of, because they take Shachras as an example, all Shachras. So over here... Except for Shema. Except for, so yes. And Amidah. 
So we're going to see that the Amid, what we're, yes, <laughs> what we're talking, we're going, to, <laughs> we're, going see, <laughs> we're going to see that we're certainly talking about Shmanes, right? About the Amidah, that should be Balachash. And then everything else is going to be a debate among the poskim, and we're going to assume halakha a practical Jewish law, that Pesukah de Zimra is, is allowed and maybe encouraged to be said out loud. Pesukah creation law is allowed and maybe encouraged to be said out loud. Shmon Esrei has to be said silently. That's, that, that, that's the, difference, the difference between Shmon Esrei and everything else. Um, so, so what have we seen so far? We've seen a bunch of reasons why you shouldn't daven out loud. Theological reasons, interpersonal reasons. Then we saw you know, the, great master, the great Talmudic masters of the previous generation tease out the fact that maybe there's some added value of praying silently in two different formulations as to what the added value is. Either it emphasizes the notion of kavana, of intention, of really the inner process of what matters, or it's a, it's a human reaction to the way you're, supposed to, you're naturally supposed to react or act when you're in the presence of God. Kuigo went step farther. Um, Avi pointed out at the beginning that if you really assume tefillah is supposed to be silent, or whispered, maybe it's supposed to be totally silent. So we see from the Gemara already, that's not the case. The you're supposed to move your lips. But is that 100% necessary in the process of tefillah? Let's say you're you're on a silent meditation retreat and you you and you want to be yotze, you want to want to daven shmona esrei. Are you allowed to just think the words without saying anything and be yotze shmona esrei in that way? Could you fulfill your obligation to pray silently? Oh my gosh, that's a great that, that's a great point. Ari can tell us about it. That if you could die. <laughs> Seriously, what's the, what, are the, what are the laws on our body that they restrict Jewish prayer? Right now, or back what, then? Like a couple years ago, when you would. You, oh, you know, any forthright davening prayer out loud was prohibited. Yeah. Even moving your lips. Even right? moving your lips. Uh, yeah. They would be watching you for your lips. That's craziness. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess if you're on Harabayas and you want to pray, so could you think the words of Shemona Esrei and fulfill your obligation of prayer through that? Obviously, God listens and God knows. But now we're talking about legal definitions. Could you fulfill your obligation to pray daily through thinking the words of Shemona Esrei? So let's go through it. If you follow the Baba Cherebi, then really, what is the main essence of prayer? It's Kavanah. So at least there's a discussion. At least it will make sense that one could argue that maybe it's better to practicalize it, to concretize it, to express it, but that's what Judaism is about, what Allah is about. But maybe deep down, you can actually fulfill your obligation just through thought. Um, look, at, look at source number 15. This is exactly what the Magad Ram discusses. The Magad Ram is one of the great halakhicizers of the 17th century. He writes as follows. Although you spell out the Shachanarak says you're supposed to say the words. Sarathian, I'm not sure. Im hispel belibo im yatsa. You're supposed to say the words, but let's say you didn't. Let's say you just thought the words. Maybe, perhaps, you fulfilled your obligation of prayer just by thinking. Why? Because I could, maybe it sounds like you wouldn't fulfill your obligation by, by just thinking. Even though, in general, you have to say mitzvot, you can't, you can't just think them. Should look, at, look at the middle of the second line. Shiny tefillah, prayer is different. Because it's defined as a of a service of the heart. So yes, we want to want you to express it, but perhaps you can fulfill your obligation just through thought, just through emotions, which is fantastic. Magen Avraham himself then debates; it goes back and forth with different, with different Talmudic passages. Maybe yes, maybe not. Maybe yes, maybe not. But at least he raises this as a, as a distinct possibility. 
And again, just thinking back to our, our topic, it flows from the Babish Rabbi's definition of what prayer is all about. The corner of the scene, why is prayer silent? Because it's about recoiling. It's about a certain paralysis that, that, that's supposed to, take, supposed to take you when you're in God's presence. So then there's, nothing, there's, not, there's no reason to go from there to say that you don't, have to, you don't actually have to say the words. But if you're working within the world of the Babish Rebbe, that really the deepest type of intention you could have is when you're silent, so then maybe you could actually be silent and fulfill your obligation to pray. There's, there's a line in the Shulchan Arach, actually, that indicates this. You look in the Shulchan Arach, on service number 16, it says, let's say somebody's sick. Chola. Let's say somebody is sick, and they can't say the words. Mispalel apilashokeh baltzido, Somebody who is sick should dive in while they're lying down, as long as you can have some type of attention. You don't have to stand up. But look at the parentheses. And if you can't actually pray, let's say you're so sick you can't get the words out of your mouth, what should you do? You should think the words. So the Ramah actually says that if you can't say the words, you should think the words. Look at the Mishabrua over here. One of the Mishabrua comments that it could be, according to the Ramah, you are actually fulfilling your obligation of prayer just through thought. Again, ideally, you should concretize it, ideally express it. But if you can't, you could fulfill your obligation just through thought, because kavana, intention, is really the main thing. Did we say anywhere where you have to dive quietly because it's going to disturb other people? Wasn't there a... so, so yes, there is, I, I sort of skipped that. It says that, it says that, if you feel you can have more intention, you could get into the davening more by davening out loud, then you're supposed to daven out loud, Unless you are a petzibor, unless you are in, you're in the middle of a congregation, and then if, you, if you're the only one shouting Shabbat Shalom, then the context. Then the context, yes. So let's say, for instance, I need to clap to get into Shabbat Shalom, and it disturbs other people's Shabbat Shalom. So the simple read of, again, it, that's not prohibited technically based on the language of the Gemara, but it would be outside the stir of the Gemara. Yeah. No, you should make like a big. Yeah. Like, do my. What overrides, like my this, ability to have concentration or other people's ability? So other, other ability, and many other people's. That's, that's basically what Thomas says. If you're davening at home by yourself, you could scream Shemon Esrei. If you feel like, it's not ideal, but if you feel like that's going to get you into it more, you could scream, scream, you could scream Shemon Esrei. The Gemara has all these stories about Rabbi Kiva. He would start Shemon Esrei in one corner of the room and the other corner of the room. It's, it sounds like it was a whole big dance. Um, but it says when he was B'tzibor, when he davened in a synagogue, in a shul, he wouldn't. He would stay in one place and he would daven silently. Because your kavana gets trumped by being sensitive to other people's other people's needs, um, so that that's where the the, inter, the the interpersonal the interpersonal thing comes in. It's the second the second tier. You're supposed to dive in silently. If you feel you you could get into it more when you're praying out loud, pray out loud, but only when you're at home by yourself. When you're in when you're among other people, when when, when in Rome, do what Rome do as Romans. I have, I don't know if explicitly it's ever extended to clapping, but it would be the same idea. Meaning, if you're clapping in the middle of an asray and disturbing other people around you, so then my guess would be that that's equivalent to praying alvel while everybody else is being silent, and which is not a good thing. But during Yishtabach or Melech, you know, you can clap, clap as much as you want. I saw I saw somebody post after Rosh Hashanah one after Rosh Hashanah one year that there are two types of shuls on Rosh Hashanah. There's one type of shul where nobody claps on Hamelach, there's one type of shul where everybody, everybody, everybody applauds at, at Hamelach. Yes, it exists. <laughs> it's a Breslau thing, right? It's a Breslau thing, you're supposed to clap at Hamelach. Um, so, fantastic. Just, just to conclude, <laughs> just to conclude, um, we've been talking a lot about praying silently in a whisper and the added value of doing so. But there are a lot of sources about the power of praying out loud. Um, the Mabitz just points out, you go through Tanakh, 
Who is the only one you find who prays silently? Kana. Almost every other prayer we have, we have in Tanakh, uh, people screaming. It sounds like people are supposed to be screaming when they're dominating. And the Ramban, in source number 18, points out that this is this sounds like this is what God wants. He point he says, um, look at the, he says the whole purpose of creation is for people to recognize God. If you look at the second line, a couple halfway through the line, the Kavanas Romanos Hakoba Tfilos. What is the intention that we're supposed to have when we raise our voices in prayer? The Kavanas Betekinesios Usakos Tfilos Rabin. And that is exactly what we have in mind when we raise our voices in prayer together, that we are all declaring to God that we have fealty to you, we're loyal to you. So clearly there's some value in praying out loud. That, as if you go through the sources, that ends up being relegated to times of crisis, Avinu Malkenus, to Pesuki de Zimra, when you're singing to God, Hallow, when you're singing to God. These types of things are supposed to be said out loud. But Shimon Esrei, which again, which is a center, part, center of Tila, the Amida, which is structurally is, is a middle part and the central part, the central part of davening. That is something that's supposed to be said silently for the reasons for for for, for the for the for the reason for the for the reason for the reasons for the reasons we delineated. And at the end of the day, I think you have a very very you have a very very beautiful balance that you come to shul. You come to shul. You're tired. You're groggy. The first the first part of prayer you say all out. In Sephardi shuls, they do it the best. They chant the entire thing. It's amazing. Um, and Gebirka's Kriyashma also, you ought to say out loud. Kriyashma, the first person of Kriyashma, you're supposed to say out loud. So you have time to get into it. You have time to get into the rhythm. You have, you have, time, you have time to get into the mindset. But the center part of Tfila, you then transition from Tfila Bekol, from Davani out loud, to silent prayer. According to the Babish Rabbi, to emphasize the importance of intention. According to Rav Luchanstein, to emphasize the reaction the human being is supposed to have when they're in the presence of God. And then the rest of prayer is supposed to transition back you're supposed you either allowed to have it allowed, you could have it allowed, you could you could do it because you could you 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 could do it you, you could do what you you could end up doing you end up doing whatever you want, and you really have this very nice balance that you for the people that like having it allowed, you have the space to do it, to get into the mindset, but the central part of Tila is supposed to be done silently in order to emphasize the importance of Kavana and the importance of realizing that you are in the presence of Hashem. Um, thank you so much, and God willing next week we'll we'll, we'll continue our learning. Yeah. Yeah.